the Vanguard mutual ownership structure is the root of everything. I still, I, I, I've read about the mutual fund structure a million times, and I still don't necessarily understand exactly it is, what it and means. I, Can you I explain to me in, in, very, in English? Yeah. Like, like what, what, I'm five years old. What, what is this? All it is is that the funds own Vanguard. Right, but, but what does that the mean? Funds. Basically, it means that the investors get to elect the board instead of— And why is that so powerful? Because then whoever they send to the board is going to fight for the investors, not the shareholders. So Eric's talking about the mutual structure of Vanguard, which I've heard the story a million times. The funds own the company, but I still like—so to me, I, my question to Eric was, what are the implications of that? So what? It eliminates conflict. Right, right. Yeah. There's, there's nobody there trying to have the fund company how, profit more. You know how you can almost say it is looking at the other two structures, which is privately owned. Usually the owner wants to make a shitload of money. Like Fidelity? So the, Yeah. And then publicly owned, where the investors want to make a shitload of money. Invesco. Is Invesco, Neither of those is Invesco owners public? Are, Invesco is public, yeah. yes. Dude, I love this. It's cool, right? I love because this. Because you know why? For me, my elbows rest on the on the arms of the chair. And then my fingers are in position. I just like that it's not like, yeah, it's so much better. You know what I had uh, just now for lunch? Underrated. I, this is so stupid to say it's underrated. It's overrated and underrated at the same time. Sweet green. You ever eat that? Uh-uh. Sweet green? You, you're nodding your head. Yeah. You love that it's place, a salad? Right? It's not underrated. It's jam-packed all the time. They have a valuation of like $7 billion, so it's probably- It's going really to go public uh, in the next two weeks, I think. Um, they have- Roast chicken that's, like, hot and, like, juicy, like, ready to drop right on the salad when you order what it. What was that place mm. in Grand Central that we used to get? That's good because uh, – Chirp and chicken. Chirp and chicken. Chirp and chicken. Wait, chirp and chicken. So what, what, There's what no you, way that's still there. What, what type of, still there? No. What, do you, what type of better salad do you get? Are you, like, a, like a mixed greens guy? No, I'm an arugula. Oh, like spicy. Pe peppery. Yeah, I like that. That's what's up. That's what's happening. Uh, anyway, not underrated, but underrated in my – World. Well, it's, it's new often. to you. It's not new, but where's Sweet Green? Is there one around here? I'm not, I'm not familiar. This one is in between Herald Square and here. Actually, are they there's literally one right across the park from us? Okay, I think they're. Hold on. Uh, Mugato is texting me about. Didn't they just? Aren't they going public right now? Yes, I think in the next. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, are these edible? Yeah, yeah. They've been here for like three years, right? Sweet Green's... No, no, no. No, they're high they're turnover real. mints. Okay, yeah. we're heavily minted. Uh, Sweet Green is going public very soon. I might buy it. Oh, you're a chewer. What? You're so. just popping those uh, those Altoids and chewing them. Yes, yeah, so I, I. Yeah, I can't wait. That's I interesting. I'm not a waiter. <laughs> I don't know. Time. Same thing with cough drops. I, honestly, I've I never can't. seen that before. But you just you pop and chew immediately. I yeah. respect that. I mean, a cough drop I will suck for maybe like ten seconds. <laughs> no time for bullshit. You ever see that I move? Wait, <laughs> just what? the pop and chew. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. I pop and chew. Yeah, I feel like a curb episode here. I'm a. That's what I do. <laughs> I, I can't wait. Sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, did you know that Porti Portillos, 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 uh, went public? You oh, know the no. Chicago place, the Chicago hot dog place. Did that's you know this? Public? Is it? It's that's the market cap. It's obviously Is a it chain. Public? It's got to be. It's, it, can't, it can't be a billion. That can't be. A what billion. am I reading here? That can't be a billion. Yeah. Moving like forward with major expansion. Oh, no, no, no. They just filed, but it's about to come public. But those IPO, let's see. What's the, are, what are they talking about? This is funny. It ha First of all, am I pronouncing it wrong? I think it's Portillo's. Portillo's. Okay, okay. 405 million IPO. That's reasonable. Confirming its intent to launch more than 600 restaurants in the U.S. over the next 25 years. Short. 625 years. What, what, was it hot dogs? We ate there one time. It's like hot dogs it's and roast beef. Hot dogs. It's roast beef. 
It's more hot dogs are like the Chicago style dog is the main main event. Like the pick, like the pickle. I but, liked it. It was good. But it's like steak sandwiches. It's good. Sausages. You would eat it. Yeah, probably. It's a fun time. Uh, I'm not crazy about all these regional like like um, favorite things. What's regional in Philly? All have to be spread across the whole country. Wawa? I feel like it loses some Wawa. of the magic. Wawa in public. People love I'd buy that. Wawa. Yeah, that's a good brand. It's a good brand. We're going to get a uh, Wegmans in New York City. That's oh, what everyone's carrying on that's about That's in South now. Jersey. My mom loves that place. So and we, my wife. Yeah. So we don't have we don't have one down here, but we're going to get one. I, yeah. They're, they're, it's Yeah. Wegmans are great. I mean, they're kind of almost like, I'm not an expert in food stores, but they seem like a bigger version of Whole Foods and Acme combined. But Like they're not as like, like, I don't know what the word is, like high cost, I guess, and organic it's, as Whole No, Foods. but it's similar to Wawa in that it has like this, this like special connection to the people who like grew up with it in their local area. It was, it's an upstate New York thing. So it's like one of the few things that didn't start in Manhattan. And then when it comes to Manhattan, anyone who's been upstate and been to a Wegmans, like, it's like an event to go to Wegmans. It's I don't not think like I've ever been to Oh yes, I have in, uh, in, uh, in Cortland. I think Cortland or Rochester. You would, know. You would never be the same after. Wegmans. It's just, it's, <laughs> wait, it's just a supermarket, right? I was at yeah, but they almost have like a restaurant, and it's they it's put just out samples. They yeah. like they like break new foods into people's lives. It's almost like Walmart, but a high level Walmart for food. I was gonna say I it's nothing yeah. like Walmart. I know, but it's like the, in other words, they have everything. It's yes. massive. Yeah, yeah. Like you could get like a uh, lobster, and then you could also get like your oh, lunch. I've been here. I've been here. You this could place, get coffee, nice. but it's Whole Foods, no? Whole- it but bigger, and I think more Acmeized. I don't know if a- Acme Shoprite eyesed. So I was with like it's. I don't think it's as high cost and like organicish. I was with the former CEO of Whole Foods earlier this week. Not to brag, I mean he's a, he's a good friend of mine. He's uh, an, ama- an amazing, amazing person. But he's telling me a funny story about why Whole Foods has to carry toilet paper because he's just like you think about somebody's typical grocery shopping list. There's toilet paper on it. So they they like resisted for a while, yeah. And now I'm sure they have a 365 brand, you know. Toilet I'm paper. sure, but like Whole Foods having to carry toilet paper just because people are only going to go to one supermarket, you know, that week. They're not going to go to two because one has one item. It's, it's annoying. Yeah. Uh, in Philly on 10th Street, there was an Acme right across from Whole Foods. What is an a- what is an Acme? An Acme is like Shoprite. Okay. I don't know what's your, you know, the big food store. Break st- uh, stop and shop. Yeah, you stop and shop. Yeah. And so uh, we and everybody in the neighborhood would go to Whole Foods for some stuff and then go to Acme for the rest, which including is, toilet which paper. Is, which is so annoying. Yeah. And then it's but like- But it's lucky when it's next door. Imagine having to get drive to the other store. That's that's annoying. Right. But then, so then like Whole Foods, oh, well, all right, fine. We'll have paper towels. Yeah, of course you should. Yeah, I know. It's a big deal. <laughs> What's the big deal? Um, was he proud of that or more like, oh, I, 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 I didn't like that I folded and finally said, okay, toilet paper. I forget how it came up. Uh, but he's fine. <laughs> Everyone. What's that guy? Every, is that guy named John? What's his name? Uh, Walter. Everyone involved in Whole Foods is very, very fine. They are sure. one of the greatest, yeah. like American business stories of the last twenty five years. I would say. Um, so, all right. So, uh, you've not been here before. We start off with a dance routine. Duncan, no, no, we do bore on the floor. We do bore on the floor, and then we and then we get into this very elaborate. And you'll pick up the steps. It's, quite a, it's sort of go. ritualistic. Yeah, yeah. You could call it. You better be clapping though, Duncan. Where's the clap? I gotta do this. One. All right. What is this? Uh, white balance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just helped me get yeah look at no, you. Look at you. We vote. You do a little, <laughs> you do a little theater. Yeah. No, I, I used to um, help on movie sets and stuff. Eric's a thespian. 
Uh, what movie set did you help on? Hold on, let me guess. Rudy. No, no big movies, but Ghostbusters like, 2. I, I was like, um, there was keep a time going. Ghostbusters <laughs> I like, 2. I thought you should keep going. You're going to hit it. <laughs> what did you, what did you help with? That is with? such a Wait. specific guess. <laughs> what did you help with? Were you lighting Sharon Stone's cigarettes? What were you doing? No, no. Like, uh, one time there was, uh, for, I was doing the Philly French Festival for a while. And then in order to get better at filming some of our little videos, I volunteered to work on a, a movie set. And so these guys who were on The Sopranos, producers, made a, a short film in Trenton about a boxer. And it didn't go anywhere, but just being on that set. And also this guy at Bloomberg who is uh, – film, we've done some videos internally for Bloomberg uh, is really good at cameras. So I just learned white balance through and him. And that's how the ETF was born. What's, what? <laughs> you, you have to do white balance. Otherwise, like, it just doesn't look right. Duncan, what's white balance? Quick definition. Uh, it's to tell the camera what white should look like. That's solid. White should look like Batnik, I feel I like. Used teach, <laughs> I used to teach photography and film. I, I had to explain this a lot. Did we based really the good. whole thing on Michael? <laughs> on, on Michael? <laughs> winter, we, I mean, yeah. Winter no. is coming. My winter skin is super pale. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of comments about Michael's complexion. Uh, listen, if that's Why? all that Do you read the comments? That's how you want no, to start no, this I, off I, today? I mostly stopped. Yeah. There's not bad comments about you. Okay. No, there really isn't. Um, let's I, clap. Let's I, clap. I, I delete them. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, here we go with the claps. Here comes number two. Okay, the compound and friends. Compound and friends. Episode. Episode twenty-two. Bang! Welcome to the compound and friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Last week, Mark Zuckerberg introduced us to his future vision of the metaverse. He explained that if you die in the metaverse, you actually die in real life. And the same, Duncan, goes for your portfolio. If you underperform the S&P 500 for more than two years, Janet Yellen will literally kick in your door, waving the 4x4. Generating alpha, especially in this market, it's hard. Listen, I bought Zillow. It's hard. But despite popular belief, you don't always need to take big risks to get big rewards. In the last year, I added one of the most consistent and overlooked investments in history to my portfolio. Not to brag. It's one that billionaires like Steve Cohen have used to grow, but also protect their wealth for generations. This is an asset class that will grow by over $1 trillion in under five years, and it beat the S&P 500 threefold from 1995 to 2020 with nearly zero correlation of public equities. This might shock you, but the asset class I'm talking about is contemporary art. New York City's newest $1 billion fintech unicorn, Masterworks.io, has revolutionized the lucrative art market by making multi-million dollar paintings investable like a company's stock. With already $250 million in AUM, over 250, Masterworks is off to the races. So join me and other legendary investors like Ben Carlson, Packy McCormick, Rem Capital on Masterworks today by going to masterworks.io slash compound. That's masterworks.io slash compound. And please see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Here we go. So is he here all the time? No, just for the show. Okay. No, he's here. Yeah. Duncan's like part of the... You are. And do you do investing thing. too? I mean, I wow. do my own stuff. 
No, okay. And we're, we have we have two producers. John is in Brazil. Yeah, no, Duncan's a, a certified financial planner. <laughs> that and, would be and, epic. And in his in his spare time, he's uh, <laughs> producing podcasts. Uh, Duncan is our creative director. So everything that you see us put out, whether it's uh, video, podcasts, music, social media, like his eyes are on it, and his fingers are very often doing the typing, and he's uh, he's amazing. So don't are you blushing back there? Yeah. All right. Too nice. Shout for shout for Duncan. No, we love you. All right, we are here with Eric Balchunas. Eric Balchunas is a longtime friend of the compound from even before we were calling this the compound. And Eric is, in my estimation, the very finest ETF reporter in America. What do you think about that? Is that too much? That's- um, no, I'll take all of that, except I'm technically an analyst, although I do reporting. Can you imagine? But wait, okay. hold, hold on. We also love there are he others. He is the finest analyst who does reporting. He is, he is on the Mount Rushmore. Let's put it that way. You definitely are. You're in yeah. the top five. 100%. Okay. Top 20. I'll take it. Top yeah. 20, yeah. probably. But I'm an analyst. No, but you have this roving, you have this, ro- so you're at, well, let, let's set this up first. So you're at Bloomberg. How long have you been at Bloomberg? 21 years. Whoa. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay. 99? Uh, 2000. 2000. Yeah. So I'm very good at math. And (laughs) and you have one of the best podcasts in all of finance, not just ETF specific, and it's called Trillions. Tell us about Trillions. It's a podcast I do with Joel Weber, who's editor of Business Week. Shout out to Joel. And he is not an ETF guy, so he sort of tries to keep us, you know, speaking normally. Yeah. So it's kind of a half ETF nerd, half normal person podcast, and we just try to simplify ETFs for people. And ETFs are fun because they send you everywhere. That's why I like, like covering. So we well, cover everything, basically. That's So that's such a great point. Covering ETFs means covering business. Yes. And all of everything that's going on. Yeah. Because there are ETFs related to every segment of corporate America and the economy. So you really have a, a, a big breadth of uh, information. I, I like to say you know, kind of have to be a mile deep and a mile wide. Some mm-hmm. jobs you just need to be a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah. Well, or, do- or a mile deep and an inch wide. You do it very well. And- we were talking before. The last time I saw you was Inside ETFs 2020. Oh, man. Too January long. 2020. Yeah. Okay. Just, uh, Michael's, just Michael's before. got two-factor two authentication. He's trying to get into the dock. <laughs> so so if Michael's very quiet, that's what's going, that's what's going on right now. Uh, we'll give you some time, champ. So I saw you there, and then, like, the conference thing, just the curtains dropped, and then there were no events. It was over. It was over. Very, it went, very it went dark. Everything went dark. But what I wanted to say is you're part of this, like— roving band of ETF geniuses and you guys have this routine that you do where any conference that's at all related to asset management or ETFs, if they call you guys, you get on stage and it is easily the most fun, most informative part of whatever conference it is. Talk about that crew. Who's in that crew? It's a good crew. Tom um, Lydon. Tom Lydon put it, he calls it the ETF nerds. Uh, it's Lydon, Elizabeth Cashner, Fact Set, Ben Johnson, Morningstar, Dave Nadig, Matt Hogan. Murderers. All murderers. Um, I'm missing somebody. Did you say Todd? Todd Rosenbluth, of course. Yeah. So. Can't forget yeah. Todd. I mean, Biggest nerd of all. Yeah. Todd's the one that will hear this and call. <laughs> I know. Todd's, <laughs> I love Todd. So you know. we're, it, I don't know. We, we click, and also we're, um, we're not really bound by the way an asset manager is bound on stage. They can only say certain things. They got their PR person right there. We're pretty free. Is Jeffrey on so that we, panel or no? No. No, Ben is. Ben is. Yeah. Yeah, Ben, yeah, ben I guess, reps uh, Morningstar. Patak? Patak. Yeah. No, Morningstar. He's, he's the understudy when Ben Johnson can't make it. 
<laughs> right? I, well, Ben's at all, most of them. And sometimes only three of us show up. Like we might do a Canada event and there's like maybe three of the six or seven people. Who's like the Michael Buffer of the ETF industry? Michael Buffer? Yeah. Who's H- like the Hogan. Who's, who, uh, Hogan. Hogan? Hogan, that's right. It's not going down if Hogan's not like announcing it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, Hogan, yeah. I think Hogan and Nadig, in particular, those two guys, I think were – they were doing this all this ETF stuff and in this informal fashion way before anybody cared. In when, fact, that's how I got into it. I was listening to, to their podcast in like 2005. Wait, what? Who? who? Uh, Matt Matt Hogan and Dave Nadig. No shit. They had there a podcast. a podcast in 2005? About ETFs. And they would get on and kind of rip each other a little bit, and then they get into these details about ETFs. Rip each other? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, well, they, you know, they. How would, many ETFs were in uh, 2005? Was it like, was time, there 20? Po- podcasts weren't that informal back then, like, at least financial ones. Now it's more like normal to do that, but I found their informalness and also their ETF knowledge and just their whole vibe was, was I could tell it was like 20 years ahead of its They're time. The best. Or 15, yeah. How, how many ETFs were around in 2005? Not a lot. Probably like, I don't know, a thousand. Now there's almost 3,000. Are there still more indexes than stocks? Remember that remember that nonsense? Yeah, th- that chart um, is – well, first of all, there are technically 3.7 um, million indexes. But just share classes and – Yeah, it's yeah, – look. There's no money everything. invested in yeah. any of them. So my uh, Meb Faber uh, has a famous way because everybody freaks out about that chart. They're like 3.7 ind- – this will end well. You know, Inflation. That whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like um, – you know, he's like, well, there's also more words than letters. True. Ooh, you, you, was, I, I would go with music too. How many notes are there? Nine, ten. Yeah. And how many songs have been written? Right. Yeah. Mab but not is, my Mab, metaphor though is also Mab is a badass. Only like you know a handful will actually matter. Yeah. Right. So the rest are just just like the songs and the words. I bet we probably only use like three percent of words. I'd say the same thing for you know they say you, you only use twenty percent of your brain. You only use twenty uh, percent <laughs> of your indexes. <laughs> what a shame! Because those other eighty percent. So, all right, so you got so you guys oh, that, are the line, e- that line from Wedding Singer. Yeah, you only use twenty percent of your heart. <laughs> so you guys, uh, you guys are the ETF geniuses. And uh, when did you start covering ETFs for Bloomberg? At two thousand six, I was uh, in data and I was doing mutual fund data. Right. And the woman who covered ETFs went on um, maternity leave and never came back. So they were like, "Hey, can you now cover ETFs too?" And I. I just sort of, you know, and kicked the tires on And that was Janet Yellen. And the- <laughs> Tell the whole story. All right, go ahead. Um, no, her name is Amy Somalowicz. Okay. So Our boss. Really, your, your she's really game. cool. Uh, anyway, so I sort of covered them and I was just, I was like, these things are pretty cool. And then I started, I went to a conference or two and I just heard some people talk. I just read up on them and I'm like, wait a second. These things kick ass. Like they're like five evolutionary steps ahead of a mutual fund, not yes. just one. Yes. So I, I, I was like, this is a wave that's going to break. Let how me get ahead mo- of the wave, how much and money I just was, became an expert. I read everything I could. How much money was in the ETF complex at that time? Five hundred million, less than a trillion, less than a trillion. Yeah. Oh, five hundred billion. Yeah. So I'd say Even maybe five hundred billion, something like that. Really? Yeah. Okay. So now what is it? Seven. Seven trillion. Holy shit! Yeah. Oh. Eric, Holy did shit. you? Well, actually, this is a great segue. Josh, tee this up. Okay. You know, what? I'll tee it up. You have. You are writing a book. Um, I thought it was going to be called the Big Long. That's not the working title. You don't have to share if you don't want to. Do you want to share or not? Sure. Uh, a big long is a uh, chapter in the book. Okay. I was going to do a whole book about that, but I, I ended up using it as a part of a bigger book, which is called The Bogle Effect. The Bogle, Bogle Effect. Yeah, which is I, I sat down with Jack Bogle uh, three times for over an hour in the five years before he passed away. We exchanged emails. I had like a lot of material sitting here, and I was just like, I really want to get this out. And I also felt, as someone watching Flows all the time, I'm like, man, Every almost every dollar invested today, you can kind of trace back to Vanguard of the mutual ownership structure. 
And so I was like, let me try to really capture all that in one book. And then you could say, if I, if somebody was like wanting to learn about funds or, or what, how we got here, I can say here, read the Bogle effect. And if you want to run ETFs, read my other book called the institutional ETF toolbox. So I feel like the Bogle effect covers everything, uh, beyond the ETF, which ETFs kind of came in 93, but he was doing all his thing starting in 74. Um, and I also found it interesting that nobody has copied the mutual ownership structure since, you know, you get this large asset manager and I was like, why? And so I interviewed all these people and they were like, well, cause there's no economics incentive to do it. Yeah. So then I was like, well, why did he do How it? How could I pay myself less? Yeah. So like, nobody, nobody wants to drive a that? Volvo. Right. Nobody goes to wall street to drive a Volvo was one of the quotes I got, which is really good. Well, cause why? Cause it only works at scale. And how do you scale that? E- even then it, it, nobody would willingly turn over all the future profits like that. So, but, Back to the shareholders. But, yeah, well, it just, it's, it's like, it's but almost they like- they started that way though. They, they did. They started that way. And, and that's the difference. Then you're not turning anything over. Nothing exists. Nothing exists. Well, in, in the Was end- Was Vanguard the first DAO? It's basically like a DAO, but with like a very, very powerful Jack Bogle really calling the shots for many years. Yeah, I mean, the, the structure actually happened through this really- insanely quirky serendipitous situation where he was fired and so he was pushed up his back was by against wellington the wall by wellington and so he he needed to come up with a solution to this major rift in between him and the, his partners who were trying to get rid of him and the one thing they would let him do was run this dumb little back office company that was owned by the funds and that ended up that was vanguard and so at the time but he could have left and started a company and try to make money. Like he he could have – I think that's what most people would have done. The idea that you would willingly stay there first of all and then make this company that's owned by the funds, that was his idea, is unique. And he, so need, we, he needed their infrastructure and their backing to, to launch something. You know, I bet there's somebody that's, out there who was the legal mind who said to Jack Bogle like, no, no, no. Here's how you do it, right? That Because how did he think of that? The person would well, be he, 90 years old right now. Yeah, he, you're not going to find them. He His Princeton thesis has a lot of this sort of – the fund industries to serve the investors. There was some uh, groundwork laid early on, and he claims he had thought about the two masters problem uh, before this situation. So, so I the, think who were the two masters? The two masters. He he thought Obi-Wan that Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is something different. And, and, God and, and, and no. Admittedly, I didn't. I didn't read the. I didn't. I didn't do the required reading for this segment. Um, no, it, it would be the, the two masters being the shareholders and the investors. So those are usually. Uh, uh, there's a tension between their two desires. Shareholders want money, and the investors arguably want more return. And so those are usually two different parties. At mo- uh, they are at every asset manager. Mm-hmm. There, they're the same. And so uh, once he got locked into that, he really became a evangelist for it. But look, th- the reason I, I wanted to write this particular book was the interviews I had, but also just the idea that my premise is the Vanguard, that structure, which continues just low. The bigger it gets, the cheaper it gets, is – powerful and it is really the root describe, of everything can you just describe when you say like that indexing structure? to me in other words if indexing hadn't come around right vanguard would have had five basis point active funds or they have very cheap active funds let's say and they would start beating all the other funds they would be the they would be the biggest active shop three times over right now because of they bring a gun to a knife fight because they're so cheap so it isn't really the indexing revolution indexing really was a perfect partner to the mutual ownership structure, but it would have been big regardless. And now it might move into other areas. So it's just beginning. So the mutual ownership structure, just to like visit that topic. So basically the shareholders who own the funds, the investors, de facto own the company. 
that provides the funds, which is why you don't have this layer of people paying themselves $5 million each to like administer this fund company. Correct. Okay. Because everyone is aligned. Yes. Yeah. What if, what, what if we did that as an RIA? We're not going to. But what, what, if we, um, what if we said we want our clients to own the firm and you know, we'll own the firm along with them? What would that, well, how, how would that look for a business that's not a mutual fund but is clearly has the capability to be a customer-owned partnership? Well, I think it would come down to if you had a big year and you had more revenue and profits, the question is how to spend those. And if, Enough to yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the question is answered, my friend. <laughs> uh, so how would you spend them? So I well, guess- Well, you have a board that makes that decision, you're saying. Yeah. So the board would be made up of executives and clients of the firm. People represented from the investors that they elected. Okay, so a lot of firms in our industry are starting to put together advisory boards of their clients, which if I were a better CEO, I would have done this already. But I do think there's a lot of value in having your clients- have representatives who are among them, have a seat at the table, not to dictate to us what to do, but just to tell us, like we do surveys and stuff, but like just to be like a voice for the rest of the clients. I should probably set something like that up. I feel like that's powerful. Yeah, I I, I agree. Uh, there was a story- What's with the whole was... thing on chain? Like <laughs> I, I feel like we could do that very efficiently. Yeah, I, th I think you should do it. I mean, I always thought the like NFL and like, I have an NFL shirt on, but like sports should have like fans- Every time they, they sit down to figure out what to film, how to do it, I, I think that you should always listen to the people who are consuming the product. I, totally I swear I can run the Giants better than Gettleman. Yeah. They really should have more of this across every single industry. But that's why the fans fall in love with the owners that come from among them. Like, yeah. like, like somebody like Mark Cuban, he's like obviously not a common man, but somebody like Mark Cuban who was rabidly – uh, he seems like a fan. He, well, yeah. he was a yeah, massive was. basketball yeah. fan, which is why— You can just why, tell. You feel it. It's why he built yeah. Broadcast.com sure. so he could watch, I guess, Indiana University games or something. So, like, if you if you think about, like, some of the most beloved, popular owners in sports, a lot of them, like, the fans really can relate to, and they feel like this guy is on my side, even though they're obviously the <laughs> owner of the team and they're not. So I think there's something to that. All right, Eric, you, so you're writing this book, The Bogle Effect, and this sort of idea has been in place for a long time. I can't believe – I want to read something from Josh's post, post. I just got stuck. His post, The Relentless Bid. This came out – Josh, you wrote this in March of 2014. Do you remember this post? I'm busy taking a bow. Go this, ahead. This is 2014. Let me just read the first uh, quick three paragraphs. You hear it all the time these days. There is a relentless bid underneath this market just waiting to buy every single dip. And you can't really argue with the statement itself. The dips have become shallower, and the buyers have rushed in more quickly each time. Sell-offs took months to play out to during 2011. Think of the April-October peak to trough 21% decline for the S&P. In 2012, these bouts of selling ran their course in just a few weeks. In 2013, a few days. And thus far, in 2014, just a few hours. It's rather extraordinary. I've been thinking about the reasons why for a long time now, and I believe I've got my answer, my unified theory of everything, so to speak. I'll lay it out below. So Josh did that in 2014, and it's funny because this is when – I mean – in October of 2014, I think I the first time I remember, holy shit, these V bottoms, like they just keep happening, was the Ebola scare. Remember that? Yeah. That was, that, v was that 14? That was October 2014. Okay. That V bottom was so insane. And I was like, that caused me to look back on this post and on the history of what's happening. So what happened and what's still happening seven years later? Well, so I, I think ETFs play a really big role in this, the way in which they're used by advisors. And you would agree, 
most flows are directed by advisors in the ETF land, right? Yeah, for, I think maybe 75, 80%. Right. So, so what are the, the ramifications for the stock market when every advisor is going from being a transactional stock slinger, which is what I used to be, um, becoming an asset allocator instead, and more importantly, automating the schedule on which they're going to buy and sell based on something other than what's going on in the market. And that's – you get this relentless bid, and it doesn't mean that the inflows are positive every month, obviously, but you get this relentless bid that comes from advisors pressing a button and buying the stock market for 500 clients all at the same time and doing that on a regular schedule, um, which I think contributes to those V bottoms and at least the speeding up of the processing of bad news. So the the, ju- the, the juxtaposition my piece was – as brokers turn into fiduciary advisors, that bid's not going anywhere. And it looks like it turned out that way. I would agree. If you look at Add the, the Fed. <laughs> yeah, the Fed. The, the Fed, well, the Fed is major. Of course. I mean, I think they've almost eliminated tail risk, or at least the feeling that there's tail risk. That's super top. Yeah. You shouldn't say that on my podcast. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I, I polled this. I said, do you think, I, I actually asked everybody, it's like, do you think that if there's a really bad sell-off, the Fed will step in? I think 80% of people said yes. Why did you do this? I just pulled Twitter, like, I don't know, maybe two months ago, okay. three months ago. But what is a really bad sell-off? In 2002, uh, 20-ish, something like that. 2000. Oh, yeah. So we know they will because they did. Yeah, yeah. But I mean – Good poll. I don't think anybody is like 5%. I, I'm, I think – but I think that's why uh, Powell can talk about like tapering and doing all this stuff. I think at the end of the day, they know he will bail them out. So I don't even care what you say. Yeah, he's data dependent. The data is the fucking two hundred day moving average. But as long as you feel that they like they'll step in, it's it's like there's really no reason to panic or to diversify even or like hedge or short or do anything or worry about leverage. Yeah, right. Uh, so the, uh, I think this whole relentless bid is a little more Fed driven. I'll tell you why because even though ETFs take in money rain or shine and Vanguard, even during sell offs, they tend to have net flow of positive inflows. Over the last, I don't know, five, six years, the money out of active equity mutual funds has been about the same as the money into passive ETF and index mutual funds. And in fact, in the last two years, they were still net negative on equities. So I think a lot of the ETF flows honestly are uh, a format change, but still – I think people, had, like a, you but, said, are are but, much more dip buying, and they've been rewarded for buying the dip. Isn't there a demography story there, though? Because, like, I remember reading, um, I don't think it's Savita, who at Merrill Lynch does the flows, Heart, Heartnet, the flow show or whatever. I just remember every every week, like, the update on the flows in and out of Merrill Lynch accounts. Yeah. And they break it up. They do hedge funds. They do uh, retail. I forget what the third category is. Maybe just regular institutions. And- Somebody who's – like I was like writing blog posts utilizing this data, trying to understand who's buying, who's selling, like a like a dog chasing his tail. And somebody I, somebody finally sat down and said, hey, idiot, that's Merrill Lynch. Everybody there is 70. Of course it's net outflows. They're living on the money. Yeah, so that, I was going to say that. Jo- Josh nails it. So it's not – do you think the money coming out of active is going to indexes? Because I don't. I think the co- money coming out of active is going to bonds. I think it's going to the supermarket and I, medicine. I, I agree with that. Because where the, are bond inflows coming from? Yeah, so I, I do agree because there's this misconception that active equity outflows, because sometimes their net over months and years is room rebalancing. It's a natural effect in a bull market, right? You get your percentage equity goes up, you need to sell and buy bonds. I agree, and I think you're right. There's probably boomers and older people who are cashing out of their active equity mutual funds. I don't know if they're putting it into ETFs. All I'm saying is, it is offsetting to a degree, 
number-wise. Um, but I'm with you. I think the younger RIA and yeah. – Yeah, at this point, you're not going to – But stock prices are going up, so it can't be fully offsetting. It has to be biased toward more. Well, this is a question more I demand. posed to Twitter, and I'm honestly not totally sure I've got different answers, is if, if fund flows in the equity world are generally flat, what, how is the stock market moving up so much? And I've received many different answers. Well, not all the money coming in is from funds. That's, 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 that's the easy answer. Yeah. Let me, let me do this. This is Nick Collis at uh, – you know Nick? Yep. He's, I mean, I, I don't know him well, but I know who he is. All right. I think he's like one one of the better. I think sure. he's, I think he's a brilliant yeah. guy. Yeah, for the Minneapolis Fed. So Nick's uh, no Nick's at uh, Nick's at Data Track, which is his own research company. This is what he's saying about flows recently. For the week ending October twenty seventh, fund investors bought nine point nine billion of U.S. equity funds. That's mutual and ETFs. Okay. Nine point nine billion. Yeah. Okay. In a week. Okay. This was the second straight week of solid inflows. Last week was nine point four billion. The prior four-week average is essentially zero, 68 million a week. So the last two weeks are notable considering they're coming in at new highs for U.S. large caps. So what are we, what are we to yeah, make I, of that? I know it's happening. So the, basically- the flows accelerate yeah. at, at a high for the market after being quiet. Yeah. So we divide flows into ETFs used by retail and mm. buy and hold like Vanguard, Schwab, iShares, and ETFs used by traders. I think what he's acknowledging is that the trader crowd has come back in, and they tend to be momentum-ish. If the market starts coming back, they're going to just pour a bunch into SPY. And there's institutions who might equitize cash with SPY. They get something in, they just buy SPY. So SPY and the queues are probably where a good chunk of that $9 billion is coming from. But if you take that's that That's money away, not like chasing the high. Yeah, that's like uh, – I call it hot money. That's well, they said, can't, right, if the market's about to make a record high, which it just did – that's the money that can't be left behind. Yeah, in fact, I know. I just looked at the flows last week. Uh, I think SPY, the Qs, IVV, they're, those are the ones that are taking the most money now. That said, if you stripped all that away, that that's more like a sort of volatile flow pattern. Yeah. You're still going to find money coming into VTI and VU, like rain or shine, like clockwork. Can, so can the relentless bid or can the big long money, like the advisor money that's coming in, the 401k money every two weeks, can that – can that dampen a sell-off when it gets really violent? I, I think so. I think that's exactly what it has been. People it's think it's going to amplify it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So we, I have a, a chart in the book. I, I go into some of the um, worries. What's it coming up, by the way? Not till April. Okay. But I'm, I'm just about finished the last version. Um, takes like a couple months to get everything together. Anyway, of the, uh, I have a, a chart showing GE. Remember when GE had that nasty sell-off in 2018, I think it was? It went down like 56% in like half a year. Yeah. We have a chart showing GE going down, and then we have a chart of all the ETFs and, and index funds Buying that hold GE. it. Right. So the bars of the flows are real high, but GE is tanking. So that sort of proves that the tail isn't wagging the dog. Thank that you. said, we've GE been, might have been, been down that. 65%, 64%. So I do think that index funds are creating a natural bid to maybe buffer sell-offs. Um, and I, my theory is in the next sell-off, what we're going to have happen, and we saw it in 2020, all the people who own active mutual funds are going to bail. It could be uh, two trillion out in a year because in March twenty twenty, their cost base, their their capital old, gains okay, go away. They're older. Yeah, that's one. Yeah. They're older. They were probably put in the fund by somebody. They didn't buy it voluntarily, right. so there's no loyalty. And so they're just like, look, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And so in March twenty twenty, it was unbelievable the intensity of outflows. There was three hundred and fifty billion that came out within like four weeks. Oh man. And so we we wrote a note saying easily a trillion will come out, but then the Fed stepped in. So I have a bigger theory that the Fed. Fed big-footed anyone's wildest I think BlackRock and Pemco, who all have people who work at the Fed and vice versa, I have to think they're all communicating, being like, look, we're going to have to halt redemptions. So I think you could almost argue that 
active bond mutual funds are the new too big to fail. So the stock market you can't the let stock, them fail. The stock market drives monetary policy. Well, I, I also think active bond mutual funds because you remember during that time, the Fed. It seemed like equity mutual funds were were seeing outflows pretty bad, but it wasn't until the bond mutual funds started right. getting then hit they, hard. They, yeah, they yeah. saw 180 billion out in two weeks, and I was thinking to myself, at some point they're not going to be able to sell bonds, and they're going to have to say we can't we can't redeem you. The ETF can still trade, and people can yell about the discount. But a mutual fund is at some point, I think, going to have to halt redemptions. And right. if they do that, I think that would create panic. Is this the silver lining of uh, the revolving door between policymakers and uh, <laughs> large, systemically important financial institutions? Well, also the they're boomers, all friends. Yeah, I I think I call my I. I, uh, my phrase for it is the boomerati. Okay. <laughs> That's what I call it. Because what, like Trump and Biden are clearly on the same page. Powell's on the same page, and they're from very different parties. But I think also, if you look at the uh, stock market, and you have charts on this, who owns the stock market? Boomers. Right. Yeah. What do they own? Like eighty percent of it. Yeah. It's their retirement savings, and they're yeah. in power. It's the whole so generation. Why, yeah. Why is would they let it, it fall? Right. Let me let me ask you this. We were getting, talking about how this is just my. It's a little bit of. A, I know I sound a little crazy with no, that. No, 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 no. So all the flows it, in the world can't save a bad business, right? GE was a three hundred billion dollars stock, however big it was. All the flows in the world can't stop it. But what about at the smaller end? Do you see flows impacting stocks on the smaller end? Stocks that just get included into the Russell one thousand, Kathy Wood little. stocks, not in two thousand twenty one, but in two thousand nineteen, two thousand twenty. Like they could definitely. Well, ironically, Kathy's active though. Right. Yeah. So yeah, uh, certainly, if a big fund, I, I have a sec another section of the book where I call. Um, medium fish and medium ponds or medium fish and small ponds. Sometimes an ETF will be supposed to be small, like, uh, I don't know, the junior gold miners. And for some reason, it just catches root and it gets too much money and it becomes like a medium fish in a small pond. I think then the index has to expand to make like room for bigger cap stocks in there, which is what the junior gold miners did. Uh, there was a case with Tanger Factory Outlets, which was over 50% owned by Passive. Wait, what, what happened? Oh, I remember that story. What happened yeah. to the GDXJ? Did they put Apple in there? They just increased the size of the index. Yeah, Apple. <laughs> yeah. Well, one last thing but, on this, and then, and then we got to move. Um, I think we had spent an hour talking about I know, this. I, I know. It's, it, like, this but, is probably boring what about for most the people. I'm I love it, but. What about the, it's definitely not boring for most people. The people that listen to this podcast are here for this. Okay. Um, what about the role of 401k being so much, so indescribably larger than it was during prior bear markets? And I think this is a big volatility damper, and I talk about it all the time. So you ha how much money did you and Ben figure out financial advisors have? Oh, 20 – oh, it was you, $23 trillion. Okay. It, way, uh, no, I got the right number. I, I talked to Cerulli. Okay. It's $25.7 right, I was stuck on 13, I'm gonna so forget, thank you. I'm going to forget my, my thought. So $23 <laughs> trillion is basically 25. financial Same advisors thing. all knowing their clients are staring at the same actuarial math. The market pulls back 5%. They they pull the lever more equities because it's what what's what everyone's clients need and nobody's making money bonds so that's happening and then on a parallel track, four hundred one k money every two weeks I don't know a hundred million Americans get paid and money regardless of conditions in the market we have definitive proof that nobody f with their four hundred one k allocations during the last crisis yeah Vanguard showed that so that money that. that money comes in as the ultimate volatility damper it's coming right out of paychecks the majority of people have no idea that the vix is up and that comes in and it is well, a it is a price blind uh, uh, completely fearless purchaser of stocks Okay, to a point, but if you take the 401k money that's in sort of the Vanguardian lane 
and you take in, say, the RIAs who use Vanguard ETFs. Fidelity, it's huge. Okay, let's even add in Fidelity. We're, we're probably at about, I don't know, 15% of the stock market. It, there's households own 40, 45% of the stock market. Right. I always say, like, everybody's worried about ETFs. Like, where's... What about these households? What do we know about them? Like they're really, I mean, but they're Eric, half how, the market. But, but Eric, and how, big were, pe- how those, big were 401ks 20 years ago? I agree. They're bigger and- More meaningful. Yeah. But is there anything, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if there's anything wrong with that. I think the no. bigger question is that should the stock market be America's retirement savings? Too yes. late. <laughs> too too well, late. If not what? If not this, then what? Yeah, well, then then it would be like a defined benefit. You want to go back to, pen- you go back yeah. to pensions? Yeah, that worked out well. That didn't go well. So, in fact, in, one of the things in my book I'm looking at is why has international markets not been as quick to adapt passive investing? It's because they're just not as good at consuming. And part of the reason Americans are good at consumption in the investment world and have sort of moved over to the sort of like fee based advisors and to passive is because they sniff a good deal because they're used to looking at their finances because of 401ks made everyone. Learn, like learn how to like at least analyze a couple funds. Whereas in Europe, they don't have to do any of that. So there's a lot more, there's a less um, interest in the markets in general. In Europe, if you're rich, you own land. So you don't, you they you are, don't care about the stock market. They're largely with commission-based brokers still, and they're largely in active funds. So passive and the Vanguard effect has been a little slower over there because there hasn't been that consumer culture. Canada, and the- Canada's like us. Germany has an ETF savings plan now, though, as part of their retirement system, which you probably know more they about all, than I do. They all want to be like us, yes. I think. I think it's just hard to get there from where they are. And I think that's why I think ultimately the whole globe will end up looking like us. But this is part of the, the sort of— The gatekeepers in Europe have kept passive out more successfully because the families that have money there, it's sitting at the same bank that their yeah. ancestors have been dealing with for 500 years. Like in Amsterdam, they have 500-year-old banks in Italy. So they, and they get charged like 2%. Like it's it's, not, it's, they don't even call themselves financial advisors, yeah. though. If you sell mutual funds to a bank client in Europe, you call yourself a fund selector. That's the nomenclature. Yeah. I'm not even kidding. Right. So they don't view – they don't have RIAs. Yeah. Like it's nothing like here at all. Uh, I want to do this thing on commission-free trading and direct indexing. Wait, let's, let's start wait, with wait, this. Wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Like you guys are RIA here. <laughs> Would you – like do you ever think about expanding into another country or like uh, – Rotterdam. Well, <laughs> twice last year. We think about it all the time, but there's no avenue to really do that right. We've, we've spoke, we spoke – But, but I, I did hear – when I talked to people about this, some yeah. people were like, well, there's no – Evangelist like a bogle over here. There's nobody really shaking things so up. Like, so with your Canada, well, no, this was in Europe okay. essentially when this person was talking about this. Um, you know who I was interviewing who gave a lot of it was Robin Powell, who oh, you guys yeah. know. Yo, if he's Bog- an evangelist, he is. Yeah. First but- of all, if Bogle was doing what Bogle did here in Europe, the Illuminati would have gotten him. Didn't you see Da Vinci Code? They would have. <laughs> there would have been like a like a like a ceremony. Yeah. There would have been sex involved, and they would have cut his head off. Robin Powell actually probably should get full time protection. I don't. I don't think that He's that'll ever get shaken up. Yeah, it's like this ancient. I love that thing. he got he got um, told to leave. He was asked to speak at a conference. Said, "Oh, I think indexing's good," and they were like, oh, "Excuse me, sir, you have to leave." <laughs> yeah, but very politely. Yeah, very politely. Hilarious. Yeah, yeah. we right, love Rob. Yeah. We love Rob. Let's yeah. talk about. So before, let's get into this topic. Here's a good. Here's a good way to get into it. So Jared Dillian likes to kick the hornet's nest. I, I love him. I didn't. I didn't hear this podcast, so maybe this quote is taken out of context. But I don't. Let's just. I don't know if it needs context. Here's what Jared said: Zero quote zero commissions has been the worst thing that happened to retail investors in my lifetime. LOL. 
I, I want to hear the rest of that now. What podcast was he on? It was with Meb. I didn't. I didn't. So, okay. so Eric, what's your take? I so, can already. So, I already know what he was saying, though. I interviewed Jared for my book, and I have that almost that exact quote. He said the same thing to me. All right, so contextualize he said that fee, for us. He's basically like fees aren't necessarily bad. And also, I talked to Dan Egan, who studies psychology, and he made this point that when you go from like very cheap to free, people, yeah, people love a deal. People lose their minds. Yeah. There's something with that. So mm. you could make the argument that five bucks a trade is actually healthier uh, than zero. I totally think it is. Yeah. And so, but the bigger point here is these investors just, they haven't had their ass handed to them with a real sell-off because it all started after the Fed came, came in in 2020. If they get a down market, they're going to sing a different tune. Plus they're young. But so they what? don't they have, have no a mortgage. Money. They don't have, they're probably not married. They don't have kids. So I was looking in the, in the book, I go into 1999 if you read Fortune and Forbes article from 99, they sound exactly the same. It's like yeah. these chat rooms and everybody's getting rich and quitting their job at whatever store. And then it, it, that ended. And a lot of those people ended up becoming like buy and hold you know boring what the investors. You know what the difference is? This time, it's 10 times bigger. Like it's so much bigger. We and have the Fed. trillion dollar companies. We have, they're going to bring this fucking Rivian public next week. Yeah, but wait, hold on. The, no. the numbers are bigger. But but no, but the, not, the story is, is the yeah, same. But not everybody's trading like they were in '99. But everybody in '99 was trading, don't you think? Everyone now is trading. Think so? Yes. Actually, I would bet. I would bet so it's I even more numbers. widespread in during the pandemic. So Larry Tab at Bloomberg Intelligence, he's we is awesome data. Basically, twenty percent of all the equity volume that's nuts is retail. That's nuts. But that is up from ten percent ten years ago. But guess what? It was fourteen percent in twenty twenty before the pandemic. So it literally jumped from fourteen to twenty immediately after the Fed stepped in. that That's when it, so I think it's probably at an unnatural elevated state. How it would probably come back down much, if there's a How sell-off. much of that was Portnoy? Definitely a piece. If I had to rank, I would put the Fed way above. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Portnoy. What, what, but, do we know what those numbers were in 99? Or do we not have them? Uh, you, you speak to- I gotta look. You speak, you ever speak to like- It was low. You ever speak to like 20-something, uh-huh. 20 20 something, I do all the time. You ever speak to 20-something traders? What do you mean you do all the time? I do all the time. <laughs> all the kids in my neighborhood, they're older brothers. So um, on trillions, I'm we- I'm telling interv- you, I, I like have conversations with 20-something yeah. traders. You know what they say? When you mock the crypto or how they're trading on Robinhood, they're like, they're like all I know is I was watching the news and I never watched the financial news. And I just heard them talking for five minutes about how the Fed was able to like- magically make a trillion dollars out of thin air and you're saying that my shit is bullshit like they are they're smarter yeah. than i would have given them credit for i'm not saying it's like cerebral they just don't have respect for any institutions they have they they watch institution institution topple like look at the cdc it's it's a clown show so now you want these people to respect the traditions we have of commissions and uh, buy and hold and like prudent investing. They're like, look at the world you built. It's crumbling. It doesn't other, apply. The other thing I'm starting to hear from crypto a little bit, which is interesting, is they they normally go after gold, but they've started to go after the S and P 500 a little bit. <laughs> it's not enough <laughs> because it's, it's not enough for them. Well, because it's like this is a Fed pumped up. The valuations make no sense. It's not real. Why would you encourage somebody to buy that now? Knowing that the valuations are, I don't know if they're at all time highs, but they got to be close. And the Bitcoin like, and, people don't give the Fed any credit for sixty thousand. Well, no, they do. Okay, what they're saying is you shouldn't telling like I think uh, the idea of encouraging investors to just buy uh, a Vanguard S and P five hundred fund now mm-hmm. they think is 
almost like a pyramid scheme, like just get the younger people in so we can sell because we know it's also inflated, which I still, I love my stocks, but I see that point a little bit in that you could argue that trying to get people to buy into stocks now is the top or at a point where it's almost ridiculously high. But young people are dollar cost averaging a little bit every two weeks. They're not, they don't have a lump sum to drop in at the top. So it's like a moot point. Well, also the crypto tends to be like anti-Fed. Like they're they're basically like this is like real value and the Fed has just made everything worthless in the dollar. So this, I think, ties into that narrative. They're not not all wrong. Like, yeah, no, there's good points here. I, I have gotten to know the crypto crowd a little more since the ETF came out. And I've been reading up on it, and it's fascinating. I definitely give it much more credit and interest than I did before. And also, we were talking earlier; they're fun. Uh, they 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 meme. They have a sense of humor. Oh, Some a, of them are so out of their minds. Fun. Yeah, so they, they really make investing entertaining to a degree, and I I, I like that too. All right. In the twelve months through June, the eleventh largest U.S. retail brokerages collected two point two billion for selling customers' options orders. Oh, it's from your boy. That's from Larry. That's Larry Tab. That's payment for order flow. Um, that was yeah. 60% higher than their take from selling equities orders. Why so, are options so lucrative? The spreads are wider. So that's why they want to pay for those. This, uh, also, meme stocks, this, this the spread trading, on AMC. The trading is more reckless. You know what this tr- spread on AMC was during the whole thing and GameStop? It was like 20 basis points. That's in, like 20. T- yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's why they were paying up the nose to get that flow. Uh, right. I don't think the apes cared. But by the way, there is um, the um, – the whole thing about day trading, so uh, back to the, the Bogle book, just because it's fresh in my mind. He he did a study. Dude, we're going to link to it. A lot okay. of people are going to buy it. Don't worry. Um, he did a study that was basically saying that in, in the 90, 1999, he yeah. wrote this article about the day trading. He claims that day traders only get 65% of the stock market return, and that's even worse than active mutual funds, which he claims get 75%. So he said, obviously, in index, you get 100%, but he thinks it's even worse. And, you know, he hates active, right? Or he is trashing active his whole life, that the day trading gets any – but I don't know if they care. Are you glad that he didn't not, – not that he's gone, but that he didn't have to witness what went on last year? I asked people what he would have said, and some of the comments were really funny. They thought he would have been like – he probably would have uh, – somebody said his head would have exploded. I met him for the first time three months before he died. He, for some reason – he agreed to take a trip up to New York from Pennsylvania, and he was at the Tiburon CEO Summit. He was like the keynote speaker. It's like a room full of CEOs only of like wealth management companies and asset managers. And it was a Q&A. He didn't have to do like a song and dance. But uh, I just like – I never met him before. Barry's met him a bunch. So like I just – he's sitting on a stage. He's got his cane. It took a big effort to like yeah. get him up the steps to the stage. So I just like went 10 feet away from him and just like right in his line of sight. And I just said, I just wanted to tell you like how much I appreciate everything that uh, I've learned from you and that you've done for the industry. And he gave me, I don't want to say he winked because that's bullshit, but he kind of <laughs> did like a nod and there was like a gleam in his eye. I think he, he probably was a little bit aware of me maybe. Yeah. And that honestly, that would like made my, my month. Well, so. he, he loved that. In fact, in the book, uh, part of what I explore is he seemed to be immune to uh, to money, um, but he definitely couldn't get enough of praise. So I think that some people have different things that feed them. That's such a good point. And so while he wrote a book called Enough about corporate greed and all so this, good. he had some kind of – but normally people with who don't care about money don't go into Wall Street. That's what makes him unusual. 
Uh, he probably would have made more sense in a different industry. So he was almost miscast because of that internal need. Could you imagine like if money. he went into a different industry, like he went into like um, Chipotle and he was like making the guac free. Well, I think and the he, customers own. The, I have the a food. theory that he almost went into hotels. Okay. Yeah, because uh, the reason he went into <laughs> funds is because he was looking for a thesis in the Princeton Library, and he just happened to pick up Life magazine. Okay. And in there was this uh, article called "Big Money in Boston." So he read it and he goes, "Okay, this is cool. I wrote my thesis on that." So then he got a job at Wellington. The rest is history. Okay. I was looking at other magazines that month in that year, which I believe was '59. Okay. And Time Magazine had Honra- um, Conrad um, Hilton. Yeah. On the cover. So I was just imagine, you know, a how how big a, a part luck plays in one's career. If he picked up time, and was like, yeah, the, this hotel business seems pretty good. Dude, Let the, me go into that. The only reason I'm sitting here is because my dad played golf with a stockbroker, and I didn't have a job. So yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Don't even ask how Michael got here. So obviously, <laughs> this is like asking a barber if you need a haircut. But the chief legal officer Dan Gallagher from Robinson, and uh, we don't need to go into him, but. Um, uh, not that I have anything bad to say. I, I don't even know why I said that. Payment for order flow coupled with technology has helped make people have has helped make investing less expensive and more attainable for millions of investors of all backgrounds. True. Yeah, I think that what I would push back on that, and I what I uh, also look at in the book is the difference between like Betterment and how they're trying to get you not to trade. Yeah. And Robinhood, which is trying to get you to trade, it's made by the same you know the people who make other apps that are supposed to be addicting. So it almost seems like Robinhood is almost made like a cigarette. Yeah, and what Betterment and some others do are trying to get you off of smoking. I found that that sort of juxtaposition. All interesting. right, fine. I'll say it. I'll say it. All right. So, so speaking of that, like the smoking part, this is angel this just, and devil on your on. shoulders. This just reminded me of Thank You for Smoking. Remember that that movie? Yeah, great movie. So Dan underrated. Ga- Dan Gallagher uh, got paid, got paid thirty million dollars by Robin Hood last year. Hold yeah. on, what's his what's he's, his title? He's the chief legal officer. Can you? They paid how him, many hours in, a night of sleep is he getting? They, on pa- they, they paid him. They paid <laughs> oh him thirty. Million dollars. That's like Steph Curry money. Do you think? Do you think that he has an entourage, like the chief legal officer of of Robin Hood, sweeps down the hallway with like I, I uniformed think, security? You, you know how like when a president goes in, he ends up like with way more gray hair. They like they age so quickly. 100%. I feel like that's the same deal with that job. Like you have to be so overwhelmed. It has to be with or, stuff, and you probably have a four year or a complete and total sociopath. It could go either way. <laughs> but wait, here's an, here's another thing. So what what Robinhood did with zero free trading is obviously the, they steer their customers to trade. We know that, but it opened up the door to direct indexing. When we were w- working with Canvas with with O'Shaughnessy's, uh, we were trying to figure out our model, like how is this going to work? Because it was it was asset based pricing, it was not cheap, and they bust the doors open and and broke the dam for us. So, to, to explain that to the viewers, if you're doing Custom indexing, you're trading every day, a lot of it for tax loss harvesting. If that's on a commission basis, can't do it. you're basically like churning up an account. You can't do it. So you have to request what's called asset-based pricing, which is basically like how much are the assets in the account? Okay, we'll bill based on that, and that which that is was, not the norm. So that was 20 industry. basis points-ish. Yeah. yeah. And for a big – it could be real money. So, yeah. that, so then they go no commissions. So that – so well, then, it depends on where you go, right? If you go to Schwab and you do that. Well, we were at TD and Schwab. They both okay. simultaneously said no commissions. And then it's like, oh, this yeah. Canvas thing does make sense now because it's My two economic. pushbacks on that or my questions for you guys is if the trade's free, obviously in Schwab, the way they would make money is taking your uh, leftover cash and moving it to- Yeah, we, some, don't, have, we don't have leftover cash. Okay, we're the so worst, then, then you we're the worst client on earth yeah. because okay. we cash manage. Yeah, yeah, okay. So take that away. And then there is also the spread of the stocks. Don't take care. It. Don't care. Take it. Somebody's going to take it. I don't care. Yeah, sell but the, my, the, sell if you look order, at sell my order flow to, to China, it depends I don't how much you're buying. Shit. No, but no, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking to, in order to buy those stocks. All like 
that's why the ETF, I would argue, has a point on that is that it's typically one basis point and the basket, whatever it tracks, unless it's large cap equities, is going to be a little, usually a little more. Even a large cap basket, I think, would be like two or three bips. So we don't care about that. But somebody yeah. who's somebody who's who's allocating like a ten billion dollar trade. Yeah, it's fine. I get yeah, it. They, yeah. No, they care. And they, you, if you can make up more on the tax uh, part of it, it would t- totally overwhelm that. Yeah. I get it. Although that does run out. I think it? the f- I think the future. I mean, at some point, and also if you're doing all this tax loss harvesting, my question is, are you getting? Is it getting confusing with? Oh, now I'm not tracking the index because I sold this, bought this. Like you're able to completely maintain. It's pretty wild. Perfect tracking. Well, no, no, no. It's not perfect, but it's pretty damn close. It's close. It's more than close enough. Okay. Have you kicked the tires on any of these things yet? Yeah. No. We we. I get. I, I think for certain clients, this is a great thing. Who I have real into yes, taxation. Not for everybody, yeah. obviously. Yeah, but I think generally, I've and you know Ben Carlson of your shop, I think, is all into simplicity. Yeah. And I think if you look at where all the trends are going, they're going to simple, cheap, and passive. Yeah. This goes the. This reverses all three at once, and anything trying to dislodge VTI or a Vanguard. Oh, it's not going to dislodge VTI. Yeah, but but here, Eric, here's what it does. It's not trying to do yeah, that. It's not. It's not, going yeah, it's to not that. sentient. Go but, ahead. Go finish your thought. Well, I, I guess my question is. If you're going to go into direct indexing, right, that would be the core of the person's portfolio, yes. right? Yes. Well, if that, it made sense for that person. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So I guess my point is I don't doubt that it will grow. You know, I tend to give my case to things relative to hype. There's been a couple people mm. really hyping this up. And I'm like, we even had Parametric CEO on our podcast. And I asked him and he said, we'll, we'll probably be 5%, 10% of the, quote, passive market. Now you think bigger? We'll see. No, 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 no. I no. don't. I don't. Of the I don't wealth think management. I think pa- of the wealth management passive market. Yeah, yeah. Maybe something like that. So he, what would five percent be? That how many? That would be a trillion. Yeah, that'd be, uh, that'd be a cool five hundred billion. This will or not trillion. be yep. retail. This is not. Yeah. This is not going to take take ETFs out of the hands of do-it-yourselfers, retail investors. That's not what this is. I do think when you have a Schwab or a Vanguard getting involved, they're or coming. BlackRock, they're coming. But I interviewed BlackRock's uh, head of ETFs for the book as well, and I asked him about this, and he had two comments. He goes, one is. We've been doing this for a long time. For it's called SMAs. Right. <laughs> but, fact, the te- I, but the zero commission is what's new. Yeah, and understood. the technology is miles ahead. What, what was his other comment? His other comment was, look, when I walk onto a, a lot, I'm fine with the six choices of cars. I don't need uh, you know, my own personal car. Oh, he must not live in America. How many f***ing <laughs> mustards are there on the shelf at Whole Foods? Well, there's – okay. This, this country the, is there's about There's about 10 cheap beta ETFs though. But Eric, what we're doing with clients is we're not opening up the, the back end and saying, tell us what you want. We have our model portfolios. Yeah, understood. Right? Yeah. So, but yeah. but but it is going to be interesting when Schwab brings us to retail. That's going to be interesting. So let's yeah. let's let's set this up. Charles Schwab sets in motion. So l- l- let me play Rick Ferry uh, for a, for a minute too, and, and push oh, back on this. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> Not here. Uh, Charles Schwab sets in motion right. monetization play for the ages to nudge zero fee trading assets into fee based accounts. A blurring of lines between self directed and advised assets. So that's the RA biz, biz take, but. The real thing that's happening that they're talking about is the CEO of Schwab, Walt Bettinger, has repeatedly trumpeted next year's rollout of proprietary direct indexing as a sort of killer app that wins index and do-it-yourself assets alike. I don't see it that way. He may end up being right. He knows more than I do. I really think this is going to be something for multi-million dollar accounts, specifically in two cases. One, there's a very big taxable liability in the form of like a concentrated position and you're both tax managing that and trying to offset it with with different exposures. So I think that's really where it makes the most sense. And then the ESG angle or the advisor who's like 
talking about EVs to their clients and stuff. Like that's the other two big use cases. I think the retail side can be huge. I think that people are going to really love their S&P and get to say, I don't want financials. I don't like energy. I, I hate Facebook. I think people are going to be really- Well, that's what Schwab thinks well, will happen. Maybe right, right. Right. I think people will be- Two into things that. on that. A- We'll cover it like it's a fund. So we're we're not like only ETF analysts. We cover everything. So it's not – I just personally think that the ETF issuers live in a virtual hellscape competing with Vanguard and they all serve up three – all that – all the things you get for those three BIPs. Oh, it's the the value prop is, yeah, is so strong that I think for the majority, that's fine. Totally. And I also think the other thing I on would, the – The other thing on direct indexing is I – you know, would, if you go direct indexing and you, the client starts saying, ah – I don't want oil, even though I drive a car. I don't want this, even though you know I shop at Amazon. And then all of a sudden, your your, your their returns will deviate, and we all know they'll probably underperform. Will they get upset ten years down the road we're, because we're now you're them, active? We're not letting them do that. Fair point, but but I think that even if it's a, such a small market share, even if direct indexing gets two percent, that's still a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. We I, like I said, I think five to ten percent. That's a that's pr- if you put it in dollar terms right now, passives eleven trillion. Active's another eight. That's twenty trillion. So a trillion. Yeah, uh, a trillion or two. Yeah. Schwab that, has that said, Schwab has thirteen thousand RAs on the platform. How many of them do you think in the next year are going to sit down once Schwab launches its product? How what percentage of that thirteen thousand firms is going to get the 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 explanation? All okay, of them. here's this new all thing. All of them. All of them. All of them. Yeah. It's Schwab TD combined. Yeah. It, all it, of them. It, yeah, it's possible. I, I just again I. I'm skeptical now, that people need that level because Schwab does have these cheap but ETFs. But here's what you're not – You nobody, have four items nobody on needs your – any, Nobody needs anything. Eric, nobody's selling SPY, SPY, or VTI to go into a direct index. Yeah, I agree with that. They're going into it fresh. Right. Yeah, understood. Yeah. yeah. But you still – there is a – you could have gone into SPY. I think so. So you are kind of competing for that core. The core is a tough spot to be because that's where Vanguard lives. That's why if I was bullish anybody, I would be bullish of the people who already made it in the core. So commit, I call it the core wars. It's the most brutal place to compete on earth because you're fighting BlackRock, Vanguard, and Schwab. So if those companies who have already competed for the core and won and live there, I'd be bullish on them. It's companies like Morgan Stanley that are that have never competed there, and they're trying to almost like go around that whole terradome. <laughs> I think that's those are the ones that are going to Why struggle. would they want to compete there? There's no money left in it. If you're not doing it with trillions of dollars, why bother? Right, but you could use other people's ETFs or launch your own. Like uh, JP Morgan they do, has so they do that now. a line of – they don't. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, they've never done ETFs. They've never done cheap beta. No, 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 no. Not, not cheap beta. They're building core portfolios internally. They just happen to favor active managers because there's payment for shelf space and lots of stuff we're not going to talk about. Do you do you see advisors use uh, launching their own ETFs as, as a thing? I don't. Well, we've already seen I know, it. I know Cullen did. Cullen and, did. But, but I'm um, saying, I'm saying like, there's like, been about 12. So that's not a lot. But do you think do you think we're going to see like a hundred next year? Not a hundred. Uh, I think it's a little tiny little a little trend over here. Nothing major. But I think if you're an advisor and you could use the ETF and really use that tax that sort of like creation redemption, uh, it makes sense from a tax efficiency. We give you perspective. two two hypothetical and scenarios. you don't need assets. There's not that pressure to feed in the terradome because you already have your own assets. So anybody who wants to follow you and invest, hey, that's just gravy. Let me give you two hypothetical scenarios. I want to hear how you would answer these. Scenario one: You're my client. You worked at Microsoft. You come to me and you say, all right, I have $8 million. I need you to invest for me. Five million is in Microsoft. Doesn't in that situation, doesn't that make sense for me to say, okay, this is the way we're gonna handle it. We want to give you broad market exposure, low costs, 
index, maybe a little bit of a tilt towards something. But in the end, I can't put more Microsoft in your account. It's I almost, literally it's had almost that, malpractice. I literally had that conversation today. Okay. So we're having that conversation now, Eric, yeah. on an, almost a weekly basis. So in other words, you would – instead of buying uh, VTI, which ho which has a 1.5% waiting to Microsoft or whatever it Let's does. Let's do SPY. How big is Microsoft okay. and SPY? Let's, Let's say, say – we'll call it 3%. Yeah. 3.5%, something like that. Should I give you that? Well, okay, let me go over this. So the, the idea is that to avoid that 3.5%, we're going to recreate SPY X Microsoft. not 3.5%. Think about it. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, it's an asset class in and of itself. So we would also, we would we could also potentially eliminate- So you're saying X tech. Yeah. Well, we-, not, we, we not, X gigantic NASDAQ bellwether. Like we, we can't, I can't give you more Microsoft. You could I'm buy an equal to weighted lower, S&P I'm ETF. trying to lower your Microsoft That's holdings the way to do and, that. and tax loss harvest against it. just equal weight it. and that would, that would defangize your, your- Well, talk about deviating from an index. <laughs> if I equal weight, <laughs> you're going to hate my guts. Yeah, no, look, if, if that- if that and also if that client feels good about that, do, it makes sense okay, to me. Okay, second scenario. Yeah. Okay. You're a financial advisor sure. now. Now you're on the other side of the table. You're, right? <laughs> How many people work at Microsoft and, and are like millionaires? I mean, I guess there's a, a handful. Lot. But, are you all right, a lot, right? Like, like, like ten thousand. Okay, fine. All right. Well, but there's there's 350 million people in the country. Yeah, yeah but there are more millionaires than ever before, sure. and most of that okay. money is in the stock market. <laughs> I did think that micro, the Microsoft people bring up that with direct indexing. And I'm like, okay, fine for those. For that 0.01% of okay. the population, probably makes sense. Okay. Uh, we, we have a client who works in legal at one of the large oil companies. Do you think we, he should have more oil in his portfolio? So there's many examples I can give you, but let's do the other sure. version. Now you're the financial advisor, and I'm a prospective Hold on. client. I have to address this. If you bought an index fund <laughs> and it had, a, it had a little bit of that oil company or Microsoft, it, I would not consider that malpractice. Now, now if you bit. bought – and you just doubled up on oil and bought XLE for the guy, I'd be like, that's crazy. Okay. But an index fund is so diverse. Sure. I almost like, it's such a small issue. We agree. But you're either doing high touch financial planning and, and wealth management sure. or you're not. Agree. Okay. okay. So, so put that one aside. That will trump all this. Yeah. We'll just, you and I will agree to, <laughs> to agree that I'm right. <laughs> the second scenario, you're now the financial advisor and I'm your client. And I say, Eric, it was great meeting you. I'm so glad we were at the same charity regatta eating shrimp cocktail. And I just feel so comfortable with you. But here's the thing. He's getting a little too. Yeah, no, no. Voice yeah, yeah. I don't know why I'm doing that. It's weird. Duncan, can you, can you change that listen, to my regular voice? We just met. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, come on. All right. So hold on. Let me have a so couple say, more glasses of wine. Say, say, Eric, I'm so glad we met and I feel really comfortable. I want to turn over my portfolio to you. And I know you're going to do the right thing by me. But here's the problem. I met with two other people just like you. One is an RAA. One's a, a Morgan Stanley. And you guys are basically all giving me the same thing. And I could frankly – I can do this by myself. Why do I need you? The advisor has been in that position yep. for four or five years now. And then all of a sudden, something massive has changed. They can literally custom tailor a portfolio sure. that – is better or can at least potentially be better than what they would otherwise have to do. And you're going to tell me that's not going to catch fire in, so in this industry? You're for if it, I agree. This is Michael Kitsis is very bullish for the same reason, and he knows that advisors control a lot. That said, that seems like a move that's good for the advisor, which I can't deny it is. If you can tie it at the same cost, great. I would, if I were an advisor in that in that situation, I would say what I could do for you is, I can be uh, an ear. I can do planning, and I would go over all the other things that I just would do. Just about the portfolio. 
Well, mm. yeah, I mean, maybe I would say something like, well, look, um, we have a core portfolio, but I'm up on all the latest stuff. I can actually, you know, decorate it with some things, whether it's crypto or ARK or whatever. I can sort of keep that part moving. I can get, um, I know how to get funds that have a special way to get income. I know you're looking for that. But I, I would I would feel weird saying I, I'm going to like deviate from a cheap 60-40 beta just because it's different. I would just be like, well, I, I'm not going to serve you Not just because it's different, because there are specific things about you and your life and your financial plan that require me to think a little bit differently than the index committee at, at, at S&P Dow Jones. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I do agree with that. I just- So where the, can I send the paperwork? The only- <laughs> <laughs> See how I did that? The only the only part to that is will they ever come back and say, well, compared to the 60-40, I underperformed. Well, you, you'll win some, you'll lose some. Yeah, That's okay. any, right. anything you do. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the SPY portfolio wasn't so hot from 2000 to 2009, and then everyone came back to it eventually. So that's going to be the case no matter what. Um, but yeah, last thing on this. You're right. You made all the, I think, the strongest cases for direct indexing, and I think it will take root. I, I'm, the, not, I'm not bearish. Brother, we haven't even I'm just really, bearish versus the ETF killer hype. Me which too, me too. But there, we yeah. haven't even really spoken about the tax loss harvesting. That's a big one, but does that not run out? Why? What do you mean, you you mean by run out? every year. <laughs> yeah, I know. But at some point, you're, you're how many? if the stocks keep going up, how many losses are you really going to have 30% left? of stocks in a given year are down. Okay. So, okay. Okay, fine. But at some point- It's already closed. You're now <laughs> selling past the close. I am transferring his IRA as we speak. The last thing on this, I don't think, people might get mad at this. I honestly don't believe that a sub $100 million RIA can or should do this because I know, and Michael knows, how much manpower goes into setting up each account, monitoring what's going on. This is like not easy to do both in terms of the complexity, but also the time involved. And I really don't think that sub $100 million RAs are staffed up to really be able to do this right now. Maybe Schwab's tools will be amazing. Maybe, Van, you know, Vanguard's going to launch this probably the end of next year. That'll probably be great. I don't know. I'm just saying as it stands, I wouldn't try to do this without like a lot of staff. And here's one more question I have for you is, if you are putting the whole client in this platform, are you? Does it give you any unease that you're basically handing all your money over to one asset manager versus, say, it is an advisor? You might pick a couple different issuers. So we think that we're in bed in bed with the best. We we spent a lot of time with our team. We do spend a lot of time with their team, and they are the best in the business. But we don't have any clients where the core portfolio is the only strategy we run. Right. So we're running ETF strategies alongside of this that are meant to accomplish something else. And then we have another asset manager doing bonds. Like this is not Yeah, because this is equities only, first of all. And it's not is it only it's domestic? A, well, no, no, no. It's they, not. It's not. It's not. It's, not. it's, international? it's, it's okay. global and it's also we do have fixed income ETFs. Okay. Oh, uh, we gotta right. get we can't we can't have you here and not do the Bitcoin ETF conversation because you um, probably I'm we gonna, can, I mean we can skip it if you want. It's been no, beaten no, to death. I can't That's skip why you're it. Here. It has not been beaten to death. You tell us what the latest is. I feel like it's just heating up right now. I feel like it ended, but it was really just beginning when they approved Bitto. Uh, I was exhausted eight years. Anyway, it, it traded a lot first couple of days. It's come down a little bit um, and the assets plateaued. So I think what I'm seeing with Bitto is it's being used as a trading tool. The way I put Bitto is it's almost like the USO 
of Bitcoin, not yeah. the GLD. Oh, interesting. GLD is trading it. Advisors. USO is the oil think, is I, the oil ETF. Yeah, I think retail investors are trading it. Plus, plus there's now options on it. And we've been looking at some of the like, you know, call option activity. This is the first time a lot of retail investors can actually do option trading on Bitcoin. That part is fun, but what retail traders are trading Bitto? Why wouldn't you just trade if you're gonna trade Bitcoin? Why don't you just trade so Bitcoin? Stupid to me. Well, yeah. if you look at Bitto, how much is it to trade? One basis point? That's the spread. Compare that to any exchange. Coinbase it, is still what? One percent? Pros trading Bitto or or retail? I think it's mostly retail. Because the pros are set up at Coinbase. They don't need this. It depends if, again, if, let's say you're a Eric's pro. I saying Coinbase is expensive. Yeah. The, fee, the fees. Even if you're a out. pro, I think, what is it, 20 or 30 basis Time points? Time out. EEM is expensive and IEMG exists, but they all. No, they no, have no, no, that's the expense EEM. ratio. Yeah, different. So I agree. The if cost is a cost. No, he's talking about the transaction, like okay. the spread the, like, to trade. Like, if you're trading it or need to move a bunch of money into it quickly. Yeah. Institutions and traders love ETFs for that. You can get in and out at a basis yes. point. No one sees you. You don't you even move the market. trade in two seconds. Coinbase that would be bad if you're trading, I think. But Coinbase probably better if you're going in long term because that's only a one-time trading fee. The expense ratio of Bitto and the roll costs will damage you long term. So I see Bitto as like uh, a trading tool, not a long-term so investment. So do you think? Do you th- what do you th- what do you think happens with the spot Bitcoin? ETF? But people underrate that spread, by the way. Which spread? If, if you compare one basis point to trade Bitto to whatever they're charging at Coinbase. So or- I use Coinbase Pro because I tried to do like the automatic deposit to Coinbase. It's expensive. I think it's like what it's at least 1% fees. for Just to, to trade it. To trade, at least. So that's 100 times cheaper. Right. That's powerful. Yeah. yeah and so I, right. I- That's a big deal. So yeah. people were saying like, uh, I, I admitted crypto rocked the ETF world, but I think ETFs are going to rock the crypto world a little. I think Ooh, if you're charging- spicy. If you're charging a lot of money, this sort of terrible environment- ETFs, yeah. are, ETFs are democratizing crypto. Well, they're, I think they're going to put cost pressures on the exchanges in particular. Can we put this on screen? This is our ETF hearsay. <laughs> Duncan, can we put this up? Oh, I th- I know this guy well, Henry. Grayscale Bitcoin ETF 19B4 filing. What the hell is that? <laughs> What's a 19B4? It, Here, there it is. Yeah. It basically, it's something- Wait, let's, yeah. it's a podcast. People aren't seeing this. Grayscale Bitcoin ETF 19B4 filing noticed by SEC starting clock for the conversion of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust to an ETF. First possible date for approval, barring SEC extensions, is December 24th. Christmas Eve? I know. <gasps> are we getting an ETF for Christmas? Only if Gary Gensler me? has like a Scrooge moment. That's my theory. Unless he has some kind of epiphany, no way. This will, no, this will never happen. Sun and Shine's not getting a Christmas present? No. No? No, the reason is Gary Gensler doesn't think crypto the, – the outer crypto markets are regulated enough. Fair. And so he will never approve a spot ETF. It's ironic never? because at some point, I think if uh, maybe there's some legislation or some kind of a regulatory framework or maybe it matures enough or he – maybe Biden loses and he gets replaced. I don't know. At some point, we will have – Do you think spot. advisors are waiting for the spot ETF? I don't think they are. It, I think they're re- agonizing over it. They're going into Bitto. I don't spot, think they care. The spot ETF is is what's called micro strategy. Right. Well, that I, is the spot ETF. I what will is that say, trade but, on? no, but if you look at the correlation, it's not that high. Micro, it's like 0. 0.74. Yeah. Bitto is 99. Yeah, that's a market inefficiency I'd like to take advantage of. Well, a, a micro strategy and a, or a blockchain ETF that has equities. I think that's a, it's probably a decent way to do it because it will move generally with Bitcoin, but not totally. So it's what almost do you like gold happens, miners and gold. What do you think happens if a spot ETF were to launch tomorrow? How, what assets in the first month? Month? Five billion. Wow. Oh, and I more. think my theory is in the course of – Sailor was on uh, this morning basically on suggesting what? it would um, – Bloomberg had a conference with that was innovation. We had a lot of Bitcoin people. 
And he was saying that the reason the ETF's uh, huge is you can plug it into everything. Yes. And he thinks that when a spot comes out, he suggested it would be a trillion dollars. Yes, it's going to be 2% of every portfolio. A trillion? Well, think about it. The 25 trillion just in the U.S. What's 2% of that? that? It'll it'll happen that month. What's 1% of 25? 2.5 trillion? No. No, 250 billion. Wait, don't stop. Don't don't, don't do this to me. Don't don't do it to me. (laughs) I'm doing it to myself. Hold on. 25 trillion, 10% of that would be 2.5 trillion. 1% would be 250. That's 500 billion just if 2% go in. Plus, you've got a general retail demand and maybe perhaps institutions. So just the advisor level could be Retirement accounts, IRAs. Yeah, Yeah, if you go into IRAs. Everyone says, oh, I'm going to do 2% into crypto because my son made all this money. I'm going to do the same thing. So I have a question for for uh, and I know you guys work with OnRamp, but I think this is the the dilemma I see advisors having is with Bitto on the market. If if a spot launched, I think they'd be like sold. Let mm. me just do this. We're all set. But Bitto, it's like ah, we don't, we don't but we don't use we don't use commodity ETFs anywhere else in our portfolio, and that's what this is. Right, but I, I guess what I've been hearing is that advisors are feeling pressure from clients to get something going, and that there are basically feeling career risk yeah. uh, with the crypto thing. And this may push them to you know just that, use Bitto and hold their nose. That's a good point. You know what that comes back to? What kind of expectations did you set when you onboarded the client? Like, What did you tell them that you were going to do? If you gave them the impression that you were going to run around chasing shiny shit for them, then yeah, <laughs> you do have pressure. I think there is pressure on the advisors to have a great mousetrap. And we're working on it. And everyone's thinking about it and working on it, but it doesn't exist yet. So it's not real pressure. When it exists, you're going to see a lot of dominoes fall. That's that's my prediction. You're going to see a lot of people very quickly adopt whatever they just heard somebody else did. So, so and we're actually betting on that. So. What about what about the, some of the derivatives? Like, I agree. Like not going to make it. What? Or, or never going to make it. What about that ETF? What happened what? with that? Oh, NG, oh, NGMI. That's not the ticker, but that, everybody thought that should be the ticker. Oh, it wasn't? No, I, I just did a poll and that oh. everybody picked NGMI. Because when I first uh, tweeted it- What was that? The bearish ETF? Yeah. Wait, tell people what N- by, NGMI- By the way, crypto people. bulls are so bullish that they got pissed off that that was even filed. They were like, how dare an inverse- e-? I'm like, it actually might help the market. I, I thought it was good because it would create more liquidity, but they were like- who would ever bet against so this, this is why This is why I'm bullish so, on Bitcoin. It, but, it's but a religion. It is a religion. It is and a, forget yeah. about the finite amount of supply, right? We all know all about that. But not only is there only so many Bitcoin, but the people that own Bitcoin are never selling ever. Like these maniacs, it could go to, and I mean that in a, in a polite, in a, in a complimentary way, it could go to literally $250,000 of Bitcoin. Like, and they, They're like Nick fans. And they would not sell. Yeah. They have no <laughs> intention of selling. Price be damned. But how much of the Bitcoin market is now tourists that will panic and sell if it sells uh, off well, like well, a risk well, asset? Well, those are the people moving the price Yeah, because those are the buyers and sellers. What do you think but the price small, would be? It's like, a small piece. Yeah, like sometimes I will do this with ARK. How much is Kathy's base versus the sort of performance chasers? And I've tried to come up with a formula for that. What would you say that is for Bitcoin? I would guess 10%. 10 it's 90% holders. Really? I would say 10% might, is honestly, people who honestly, lost their passwords no, no, no. or their coins. Eric, Eric, like Tom Brady. More. It might be more. It might be more. Yeah, the I Bitcoin think it's more like thirty percent. You think it's? Th- I know why. I think in terms that's, of that's still complimentary. Seventy no, percent no, no. is core. That's a good core. No, I think it's like ninety-five percent core. Wow. But but in terms of the activity, Maybe. in terms of the activity, it might be fifty percent. There tourists. are still there. There are still Jets fans. Do you understand? <laughs> but wait, guys, this is a big, this is a big distinction. I'm like, saying, we, we play the Jets this year. I'm so psyched. It's an, it's like an easy win. I'm it's saying ten percent. The whales. Let's say ten percent own ninety five percent of the supply, but of the trading, maybe fifty percent is the tourists. Yeah, 
Fine, yeah. Because the the whales are not trading. If anything, yeah. they're only just buying. It's funny. I, I used to say like the uh, holders have a lot in common with this sort of Bogle philosophy. There was this guy who was on Dogecoin, and he came on to this TikTok, and he was like, you buy the Dodge, you hold the Dodge. You buy, and then you hold it. And he was like, you do not sell it. How hard is this? Oh, Bitcoin Bogle and is I was, a great meme. I know, I know. Well, there's a guy oh, on Bogle called- Is there called, a Bitcoin Bogle? There is. His, his name's um, at Crypto Boglehead or something. Is he funny? Oh. Is he funny? I, I don't know if he's funny See, per he's se, a, but his I know whole, he's not funny because he didn't a, go a funny with Bitcoin idea. Bogle. Yeah. So that's, I already know he's not funny. But they have a lot of like, we're not selling is very Vanguardian in a way because uh, they never sell. Uh, could you explain this to us real quick? So the GBTC premium has collapsed a little bit. It's now only 15%. What happens? How quickly does that go to zero if an ETF conversion happens? Instantly. Who are we talking to that so said if, five if you days? Own, if you own it and they convert, you're made whole. That's so, crazy. So why isn't everyone buying this? Because it made it, well, the when will it happen? The it's timeline not a premium, is unknown. It's a discount. I'm saying the discount collapses yes. to zero, so that's yes. a 15% free trade. So you yeah. have so you have a 15% automatic. Yeah, that's why it's enticing people because it was at 20% a little while ago, and now it's at 15. The question is, when will they be able to convert? And let's say other 33 act spot ETFs come out first, and the SEC just makes them wait. Will that hurt it? So therefore, you actually could lose money. But if you're in it for the long haul, like and somebody asked me, like. If you think about it, um, GBTC would be, be a better long-term investment than BITO because GBTC probably will at some point, at some point, might take five, 10 years. I don't know. You don't think it's to You get that. But then, and, and BITO will constantly corrode because yeah, of the yeah. expense ratio and the roll yeah. cost. What, yeah. what if Grayscale just says, okay, you approved five other funds before us? Forget it. Here's everyone's Bitcoin back. Then you get that 15% anyway. Yeah. It's redemption. Yeah. So we're, there we're are other ways. Yeah. So th that's why people would buy it. I can't understand why why that is persistent. The question is, how long do you want to wait? It, it For, could be a while. Well, arguably, look at the closed end fund market. How many? Not anymore. But there were bond funds, leveraged bond funds, for years trading at ten and twelve percent discounts to their NAV. Like that doesn't exist really anymore because of what the Fed did. But like th this this discount should not persist the way it has. Something there's something else that we don't understand fully. I think. Well, I just think it's right now the people are worried that more people will bail, go to the Bitcoin ETFs that exist, and the discount will go down further. The same discount in Osprey, by the way. So there's two versions. But again, of this. if you're going in five years, who cares? If the discount goes down more. Yeah. You just wait. But I don't know if everybody wants to wait. How many uh, people are think gonna, of it like a bond that's going to mature, exactly. selling under par. Last thing I want to That's a good way to look at it. Uh, so we found out that. Kevin Durant is launching a $200 million SPAC. Why not? Does the taper kill stuff like this? Is that going to slow things Kevin down? Kevin Durant is going to beat the shit out of you. Don't go anywhere near Brooklyn. This, <laughs> what guy, do you think, dude, this guy responds to people too on social media. I'm not media. trolling. What? what? <laughs> you you said, wait, what did you say it again? Does it kill stuff like this? What, what, do what you did mean? I say? I don't know. What, what did you, I say? What do you mean stuff like this? Nonsense. <laughs> now you're dead. <laughs> All right. Kevin Durant is probably... A Dude, bad he, example. A it. bad example to use he as nonsense. It. He crushed it because this guy invests his like for real. His portfolio is, is yes. on fire. So no yes. disrespect to Kevin Durant. Um, look, you've heard my view on the taper. I think everybody taper this, taper that. I think all that is meaningless if everybody thinks the Fed will bail them out if the stock market and everything goes to shit. Then it doesn't matter if they taper or not. I would say that what would kill all this is if like Ron Paul or AOC becomes Fed chair. Mm. You'd need somebody really different to be like, 
screw the Fed. This is ridiculous. There are some people in politics who think the Fed has just made all this, you know, froth and everybody rich and the wealth effect has gone crazy. We almost and had one of those people, uh, Judy Shelton. Trump liked her because she was saying crazy shit. But then when he like heard what she was actually <laughs> saying, she's like a gold standard person. Yeah. He probably like looked that's at what killed us. He looked at Don Jr. and said, "That's not good for us, is it?" Yeah. And Don Jr. said, F- "No, we don't <laughs> want a gold standard. We want to keep doing tax yeah. cuts that are unpaid for." So, um, or let's say a Gen X or millennial when that generation comes up, and you have somebody who's just like, "It's not my money." I feel like those people can always be bought in the end. Probably, but um, I, I don't show, think you get some Sean of Arc that wants to come in and clean up the Fed. I feel like I feel like they're gonna want to make speeches for money after, and you can you can corrupt those people too. Probably right, and I do also you know with the crypto, you know there is that whole theory of like <laughs> the people who make have the coup going on end up being just as like awful as the king that they overthrew eventually. Well, they get there. Yeah, yeah. that there is some it's a circle truth that, of life, and crypto I think also makes so much money for the machine. Especially with the fees we're talking about on the exchanges, they completely and Wall co-opted Street. it. Can I introduce? Yeah. Can I, before we go on to but, favorites, but, but one more thing oh, on please. the Fed. In it's not, in my opinion, it's not taper. It's when people will stop feeling like the Fed will bail them out when things get bad. When that feeling, because I we interviewed the Janus Twenty guy on Trillions, and he was that Bill Gross. He, no, no, um, Scott. I forget his last name. It wasn't Bill Gross. No, that was this is like in the nineties. Uh. Anyway, I was like. You know, when the, the market obviously crashed, the internet bubble burst in 2001, he was running the Janus 20, and it was life was bad for this guy. Yeah. And I was like, did you ever think, like, the Fed would come in and just sort of, like, help everything? And he's like, that thought never crossed my mind. Right. And it's interesting that Very now interesting. that the opposite of that thought would never cross your mind. Yeah. I can't imagine a world in which the Fed steps because away and says, co- no, let it burn, let yeah. it burn, because fix yourself. Stock, because the stock market used to be influenced by the economy, and that's now backwards. All of the money being spent in CapEx by tech companies, for example, yeah. is because their stock prices are selling at 30 times earnings. So stocks are the driving force behind the economy. Therefore, that's the only data that the Fed needs to be dependent on. How does how the stock market reacting to what we're doing? And don't forget the bond market. If if Fed, if, you know, if rates raise, if they taper and rates go up too much and stocks start selling off, um, again, that's that would be the – Long, if, and if they don't step in, that would obviously be a sort of downward spiral. It's only two days, but rates are coming down since they announced the taper. Hilarious. It's hilarious. hilarious. You know, again, everything is backwards no one, always. Yeah. I almost think the market's like, yeah, look, go ahead and have your little hawkishness. Talk like you really like, you know, are, are like independent. We know, we know. Wink, wink, nod, yeah. nod. I think they just feel back in the day when Bernanke said taper, people were like, shit, he's going to taper. I just don't think they really think that even if you do taper, you would ever let us down. In the end, what a world! So, <laughs> so let's let's end on that note. That very that very hopeful conspiracy tinge note. Well, if you have money in the stock market, it is hopeful. It's the boomerati. Yeah. Love it, my guy. I'm with you. Uh, we're gonna do favorites. I'll do mine real quick. Packy McCormick's thing on uh, Rivian is pretty spectacular. I read that on the train. Uh, so I won't I won't spoil it for you. But there might be a truck. It might be a pickup truck. Uh, I didn't really know much about this. I just always lumped it in my head with like Lucid and Nicola and all. But really, this is something very special. I'm not saying buy the stock when it comes out, but I understand why it's going to be valued at $60 billion out of the chute. And I understand why like Bezos met this guy and was like, I'll buy 100,000 vehicles from you on that. We have packing so, next week. Yeah. So if you're not subscribed to Packy McCormick, then you're not getting the not boring letter where he does these kinds of uh, 
foreshadowing of things that you need to know about. So highly recommend you subscribe to Not Boring and read this Rivian thing. It's really, really well done. Uh, what, what do you got for favorites today? I'm so happy Curb is back. And I'm behind. I only saw the first episode, but I'm going to watch it tonight. I can't wait. You got to get you got to you got to get the whole thing done in did time you, for did Sunday. You, did you see it last week? Oh yeah, yeah. I watch it. I watch it live. It's the only thing I it's, watch it's live. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Um, I'll stick with comedy shows. I'll do Netflix. I think you should leave. Okay. So I've been really deep in this book, and when when I, you know yeah. you guys have both written books, the best thing is like a an hour of like ridiculous comedy. Yes. To, and this has really hit the spot after long editing sessions. This guy is whacked, Tim Robinson. <laughs> and you almost have to – I watched it twice. It actually gets a little better Who's the second Tim time. Tim Robinson? He was on SNL, but he didn't do well. Okay. You know, and he, Netflix gave him this show called I Think You Should Leave, and it's he's, he's, it's deranged, but okay. in a really fun, funny way. You know my um, sense of humor. Will, will I like it? I think so. All right, I'm going to try yeah. it. Yeah, I would just give it a chance, though. I'm going to watch it on the train home now. Wait, so. just give it a chance, comma, though, makes me sound suspect. Wait, is that pictures? I, the, the reason I would say that is because it's a quiet taste. I think there's a almost a touch of avant garde where it's, it can be almost be too weird. But James on my team likes it. His half of his friends like it. Um, so I think it's. I see people James tweeting Alcatraz? about it. Uh, <laughs> James on my team, not no. Oh, okay. Safer. Okay. I'm a fan yeah. of James. Different team. Yeah. If it's good enough for him, yeah. right, I'll check it out. <laughs> Different team. Yeah. Eric, listen, you are the best and the brightest in your uh, in your lane. Uh, I don't know if you listen to Animal Spirits, Michael's podcast. Literally, he's referencing you every. <laughs> I, I do, and people email me. They're like, "Hey, man, Vatnik me- mentioned Vatnik's you." Talking yeah. about Balchunis. James listens to every second of your podcast. I mean, he is. I love he's, James. He's like what your number one fan. He puts out great work. Eric, yeah. Eric just skims for his name. I, I think. I think that um, Eric might have the record for the most tweets that we've ever used. Oh, really? Animal Spirits. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Wow, I'm oh, honored, man. To be. We yeah. listen. Yeah. We, we th- we think you're amazing, so it's great to see you. I love you guys. Yeah, the R- Ritholtz is all, is all through the book. I reference you guys a lot. Interviewed a couple of you guys. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna. Is that up like for pre order yet, or it's too soon? It's on Amazon, but I, I it's so long far from now. I'm I'm just not gonna really right, so do gonna much have, marketing right, until yeah. like it's Smart. like a month. Of, yeah, Smart. I'm not gonna overwhelm. We're gonna have you come back when it's like sure. full blown marketing time. We'll sell a ton of copies of the book. Hey and, man, uh, I, I won't. I won't. I. I won't argue there. All right. <laughs> you know when you when you publish and you're not like Michael Lewis, you gotta you gotta hustle. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Believe me, I've done three books. I, d- I did my last book. Trust but, me. But, by, by the way, when I interviewed for you for the other book I wrote, yeah, I remember you had just finished that one and you were like, "Yeah, I'm not writing another book." Yeah. yeah you. I think you were a little. I know the and feeling. Portnoy now. did all, all the hard work, frankly. <laughs> not not Dave Portnoy, the the other. Oh Port- yeah, Brian right, right, Portnoy. right. Good yes. Portnoy. Yes. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> We're not going there. All right. Hey, we love you. Thank you for coming. So glad you survived uh, your first pandemic. I knew you would. You were on my list of people that would definitely be on the other side of it. And uh, welcome back to uh, welcome back to the, the world, I guess. We'll see each other at conferences this year, next year. Hopefully. Yeah, uh, man. Thanks right? for having me. This All is right. great. You're going to have me back on stage at Bloomberg or are you sca- a, little, a little nervous? Yeah. No, dude, you're the, you're the All greatest. Right. Yeah. All right. Fair yeah. enough. Every, every event needs a Josh Brown. All right. Cut, cut, cut that soundbite out. We're going to use that later. All right, Eric, thank you. <laughs> Guys, don't forget. Don't forget. Ben Carlson has a new show on the YouTube channel. So it's YouTube.com slash The Compound RWM. Ben Carlson is answering your questions. Literally three to five questions every Thursday. Submit a question. And if we use it on the air, you get the official Compound laptop sticker. How many of those have we sent out, Duncan? A bunch, right? 
Uh, they're in the process of being sent out. I just made that up, but I know they're on the way, right? I, yes, I have them in the envelopes. Why are you, why are you letting those build up? You're going to do yeah. a big batch? Yeah, yeah. I got stamps today. All right, fine. You, I promise you're going to get a laptop sticker, though. That, that part is true. Uh, also, don't forget, New Animal Spirits every Monday, every Wednesday. What are your thoughts every Tuesday night? We will see you guys very soon. Thanks so much for listening. I need one of those. You feel feel warmed up? You ready to do this? Yeah, you ready? Let's go. (laughs) Was that fun? Uh, Yeah. That was really good. Yeah, we could go on. Honestly, it's ridiculous. We we, we thought we were going to get you. Now that they were good pops, we could have gone for so much longer. We skipped. We skipped the shit that doesn't really matter. I know that.